the subject matter of my newsletter today was called Chickens and Buttons. And what I talked about was how when sometimes when I'm just like lamenting, I just don't have the energy to do this, I don't know if I can, I think about my grandparents who came from Poland and immigrated here knowing nobody, having no money, not speaking any English with, you know, the tens of thousands of millions of other people that immigrated here. And they would do anything. They would like pluck chickens and, you know, kill them and pluck them and sell them for the Sabbath dinner. They would sell buttons. They would, you know, work in sweatshops, whatever it took. And then they'd go learn English at night. But their movement was forward. They just had this drive to make it work. And so sometimes when I, when I can't find it in myself, I'll just even say the phrase chickens and buttons. That was Ellen Fondler, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 151. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. So on this show, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers, and I can't give you any miraculous 10-day, six-step life hack plans for anything. But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, I'm honestly so over the quick fix approach, and my guess is that maybe you are too. Maybe that's even why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep. We go into meaningful topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, and we never shy away from just telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way even when it's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and always will be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. When you get over to Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show. Because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with and will hopefully continue to grow over time, but higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. Being able to pay all our guests has been a big dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, then it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio, even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. So please know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide. 
When you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that these voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. As a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time, which, oh man, if you think that it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait till you start getting my emails. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, such as Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood, so you can feel really good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. Over on Patreon, you'll also see that there are currently three different funding levels, an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Ellen Fondler. Ellen is an award-winning entrepreneur and career strategist and the creator of an interview project called How Did You Do That? Ellen began her career as an attorney specializing in death penalty cases, and after practicing law for 18 years, she reinvented her career and launched her first business, followed by three additional businesses and community projects, one of which raised over $5 million and to date has impacted the lives of over 25,000 K-12 students. In this episode, Ellen and I have a deep conversation about what it's looked like for her to build a meaningful life and career. We talk a lot about reinvention, which is something that Ellen has done again and again throughout her career. And she shares honest stories from being a multi-passionate person who isn't afraid to go after the things she wants most. Ellen also talks about more personal things, such as the realities of aging and how she's kept going after incredible pain, heartbreak, and loss in her life. Everything she shares in this conversation is encouraging and real, and I so loved talking with her. I hope you do too. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Ellen, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so, I'm so happy to be here. I feel like this conversation is a long time coming. I know, I know. I'm trying to remember when I think we did, we met through Alex Franzen, right? Originally we met through Alex. And then I interviewed you for my interview series. How did you do that? And then I did one of your outros in, I think, June. And here we are. And here we are. Yes. And I am delighted at all of the fun things that we're going to get to talk about. But before we do that, I would love for you to drop me into your real life. Tell me how you spent the first hour or two of your day today. Oh, what a good question. I spent the first hour of the day. Oh, I sent out my newsletter this morning. It was November 1st. So I said, rabbit, 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 which I say the first of every single month forever. I've always done it. I have no idea if it works or not, but it's supposed to bring luck for the month, if that's the first thing you say out of your mouth. And I texted it to my boys. And then I sent out my newsletter. And as always happens with the newsletter, no matter how many times you read it, you find a million typos. So I dealt with that. And then I met up with some friends who I hadn't seen in a really long time and had some wonderful conversation. 
I listened to one of your uh, interviews to get ready for this, and here I am. And here you are. Okay, so specific newsletter questions as someone who also does weekly writing. What's your process? Is it you sit down and write the whole thing at once and then edit it later, or it kind of happens periodically over like a span of time? What's your newsletter process? So it's usually a process. I, I realize sort of in the middle of the month, like getting to, I only send out a newsletter once a month. I, I post things on my blog. Usually I'll do one of my career forecasts, which is an astrology career newsletter that I do with my friend Heidi Rose Robbins, who's an astrologer, and she does the astrology part and I do the career part. So that's one of the things that I uh, post on my blog every month. I also usually post one of my interviews from my How Do You Do That interview series. And maybe I'll do like a link love kind of thing if I have the energy, but they take like a lot of time. So then I'll write a newsletter and usually I'm moved by something that's going on either personally or in the world. And I'll just get an idea about what I want to write about. And I'll like sort of vomit some words on a page and just sort of like let it sit for a while. And then when it comes closer to actually publishing it or making it happen, I'll really focus. Like I'll write something, you know, I'll make the the things, the arbitrary thoughts I had put on a piece of paper. I'll bring them together a little better and I'll spend like a couple of days really just working on it. Like, and sometimes like if it's late at night, I'll, I'll get, you know, sort of inspired and I'll start writing, but it really is a process. And even as of last night, I was changing paragraphs and changing words. And, you know, there's so much going on in our world that I just wanted to um, get my thoughts right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm always interested in hearing about other people's creative process, specifically when it comes to writing, because I find it helpful to realize that really no two people's process, like it's not the same. And And it's not to say that there can't be general writing advice or creative advice or things that have worked for other folks. But, you know, some people that I know write every day. Some people like to write huge amounts in short bursts. Some people write that there's just like no right way to do it. And so, I don't know, I always like hearing how other people make their work come to life. And, you know, for me, I spent many, many, many years, I've always been a writer, but, but in different forms. Like at the beginning of my career, I wrote death penalty briefs for the appellate briefs where I would read thousands and thousands and thousands of pages and have to, you know, narrow it down and, and summarize like statements of facts and the law. So it was very technical in many ways. And then when I was the director of a nonprofit, I wrote lots of grants, which is a different kind of writing, but also very technical. So when I started writing my blog and when I started doing my online work, I really struggled to like find my personal voice to like be able to put more of myself on the page. And it's been a process. It's not easy. And one of the things that really helped is I took some writing classes with this woman, uh, Lori Wagner, who runs a program called uh, Wild Writing. And I'm now actually a certified wild writer teacher. But it's a writing, um, it's more than a, a process. It's like a, a, how do I word this? It's, well, it is a process. It's a timed writing process that is used to tell your stories and uncover themes that you want to write about. And what happens is Lori or who's ever teaching will read a poem and then give you some prompts. And for 15 minutes, you write as fast as you can, pen never leaving the page. And by writing so quickly, you're able to push past your inner critic and your ego and 
in the ways we get trapped where we want to sound good or look good or that doesn't sound right. And it gives you a chance to move to this like less con- conscious, looser groove and really bring up things. It's almost like therapy in many, many ways. And even if you can't think of what you want to say because you have to keep writing through 15 minutes, you just write things like what I'm trying to say is, or what I really want to tell you is, and it helps you like dig just a little deeper and a little deeper. And doing that with Lori um, really helped me uncover more of my voice and also just getting less and less self-conscious about being authentic in a much more public kind of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's a really relatable thing for anyone who writes or shares things publicly, right? It's like getting, I think it's easy to get stuck in wanting to sound good or thinking too much about all of the different people that are going to read it. I remember one of the pieces of writing advice that I got a long, long time ago, I think before I was even doing writing online, was the idea of no matter what you're writing, that addressing it like in your mind to one specific person. And that has helped me a lot too. Like when I sit down and write my Friday emails, when I write virtually anything, and it's not the same person every time, but there will be like one friend or one person in my life who I am writing that week's thing to. And for whatever reason, that helps me not think of it as like talking to the universal or talking to like this big audience. I'm like, okay, well, what would I tell Bryce or Jamie or, you know, whoever? And that is, has been really helpful for me. That's a great idea. I really like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and also for me, one difficult, when I first started doing this, you know, it's different when like you're writing something as a job, like if you're writing an appellate brief or you're writing a grant, it's not personal. And at first it was very, very difficult. You know, I'm very old school and I'm more of a person that likes having real conversations with people as opposed to being on social media and sharing myself in that way. And being a business person, you have to be on social media a little bit. So, so getting rid of that uh, embarrassment or that um, feeling very exposed kind of feeling of putting myself on social media also has taken some time. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think that that's a really honest thing to say because uh, not everyone has the same level of comfort with every different medium of sharing, right? Some people are really comfortable with public speaking. For some people, that makes them, you know, want to crawl into the corner and cry. <laughs> I think the same is true for social media. The same is true yes. for lots of different things that, sure, even though there are some tools that maybe it does make sense for most folks to use because, you know, if they're doing online business or something like that, it doesn't mean that there isn't a getting used to it process. And I have to have this conversation with myself sometimes where like, if something really just isn't the right fit, like, okay, is there a different tool that I can use instead? Or if not, what can I do to kind of own this process and help, you know, help myself to get more used to it? Yes. Yeah. And that's one of the nice things also about having a newsletter because the people that receive my new newsletter, for whatever reason, They've signed up because they like what I'm doing. They like what I'm saying. They are, I'm not just like talking to mindless faces or people that I have no idea who they are. Mm-hmm. And, and that feels a lot better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on sort of this idea of sharing or, you know, vulnerability, what's one thing that you have been wishing lately that people were more open and honest about? Also a good question. Well, I think with along the lines of the social media conversation, uh, I think people hide behind social media. I think, you know, obviously I, I love Instagram. I think it's wonderful. And I spend my 
you know, fair amount of time, like looking at people's Instagram posts and, but a lot of it's not real. And, and it can make one feel badly that somebody's life looks amazing and yours doesn't necessarily look that way. Uh, same thing with Facebook and the, the noise of it all is just very, very difficult for me sometimes. And then I think so what that leads to is that leads to an inauthenticity of in, in, in conversation. And again, I, I really so much more enjoy sitting down with somebody. And that's why I like podcasts also. I think people tend to be more authentic in this kind of medium. And you and I talked about this actually last time we spoke, but one thing that I personally find difficult given the age and stage I am in life and living in San Francisco, which is a very young city, is how difficult it is not to be that young. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you sort of reach the age of 50. And despite the amount of experience you've had and what you've done in the world and who you are and how much more you can give, you become invisible. And um, it's a tough one. It really is. And it's A, not really spoken about that much. And B, it's, you know, sort of one of those um, problems in, in the designing your life work that I do. There's a thing called gravity problems, which is a, uh, it, it's not even a problem. It's just a, a truth. It's just what is. And, you know, the fact that, you know, ageism is real is not really spoken about. It's a gravity problem. It exists, but there's no way to bring it up to the surface. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's pull up that thread a little bit. With that in mind, when it comes to aging and what you said about, you know, society sees anyone over 50 as invisible and, you know, doesn't anyone. really. I mean, well, you, you get the gist. Right, right, right. I get what yeah. you're saying, right? The, the, yeah, on yeah. the whole, yeah, of course. And um, so with that in mind, like what are some more specific aspects of that that you wish were talked about more or that you would like to share or talk about? Well, I think one, that it exists. You know, I think that certainly... There have been times in my life in the last 10 years or so when I've applied for things, haven't gotten them for all sorts of reasons. One of them maybe because I was competing with people that were a lot younger than me. Um, so it would be good to have a real conversation about that. Uh, but less so than that, more, um, I think we have so much to learn. I mean, it's not even that personal, but it's, it's more generational. I think we have so much to learn from people who have had experience in this world, who have, you know, experienced some of the difficult things in life, who have come out the other side of it, who could really help people that are starting to go through it now. I think we don't respect in this country, other countries do, but we really don't respect elders. We don't use them as mentors. We just don't use the knowledge that, that people have. I, I just, for, for example, I just saw on HBO uh, the Jane Fonda documentary. And Jane Fonda is an extraordinary human being. I mean, she has not, she's not perfect. She's had like, they split the documentary up into five pieces and she's had like five different parts of her life. And the way that they did it was sort of interesting. They sort of made it connected to the people she was married to. She's had like four, four or five relationships. And now she's sort of in the world on her own. And even somebody like Jane Fonda, Gloria Steinem, people like that um, held in the kind of esteem that they should be held in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With so much focus on like, 
young and new and the best 30 under 30. And then there's nothing wrong exactly. with that kind of stuff. But I, yeah, I get what you're saying. That, and then, but, and I do think that it's a, it's like a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing. And you know, with the work I do, I try to help people find work that they really love. And so often, um, People are doing work that they sort of fell into. They don't really like. It doesn't really resonate with them. They are afraid to of the of the um, what will happen if they quit or move forward or try something new. There are stories in their head about why they need to stay stuck where they are, and they could be so helped by somebody else with experience that says, you know, those questions, what would you tell your your 20-year-old self or what would you tell your 30-year-old self? And inevitably somebody says, I would tell her that everything's going to be okay. I would tell her to just follow her heart. I would tell her to just cool out. Whatever the answer is, but we, all of us, take things very seriously. We blow things up. And with the experience of life, things get really put into a different perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What would you tell your 30-year-old self? I would tell her to cool out. (laughs) (laughs) I would tell her not to worry. You know, I'm a worrier. I tend to worry about things. And my struggle usually is to just stay present in the moment. You know, we can't really do anything about the past and the future. We can't do anything about the future. And I tend to worry about things that have not happened. And, um... You know, the, life has shown me that the things that I worry about were sort of a waste of my time. Does that help you now to not worry so much? Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes not, yeah. You know, sometimes not. You know, it depends on the time of day. You know, my nighttime self gets a little bit crazy. Like if, if my demons come and visit me in the middle of the night, I, uh, I, I am less able to deal with it than if it's during the day and I can go take a walk or I can go call a friend or I can put, there are ways to put things in perspective during the day that just are not available to you in the middle of the night. Um, but yes, it does help me tremendously. Sure. Because I can just tell myself, it's not that it doesn't happen, but I can get rid of it much quicker. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons that I've been so looking forward to having this conversation with you specifically is because of all of your both personal and professional experience with change, with reinvention of different kinds. So in order to kind of dive into that conversation, I thought that maybe you could start by sharing the path that your career journey has taken over the years. I would be happy to, and it's quite a journey. So I am... You know, if one believes that there's only one job for you in this lifetime, I am an example that that is just not true. Uh, For whatever reason, I I could tell you astrologically why this is, but also my personality is such that I change jobs, very uh, careers. I follow my curiosity. I am comfortable with reinvention and change. It's not always easy. And believe me, I have many days when I'm like, what the fuck have I done? But I'm almost moved by a force that I can't control. So, and, and a lot of it is just because of serendipity. And a lot of it is because, you know, I'll just like hear like a little whisper or mumbling and I'll go, "Uh Oh, here it comes. And, um, I just follow it and it just leads me to like a next adventure and a next curiosity. So I started out, uh, I went to law school, I graduated college and I sort of said, Whoa, I better figure out what I'm doing. And I asked my friends what they were doing. And some were applying to law school, some were applying to social work school. It was during a time when people were doing more professional things than 
creative things, or at least the people I was hanging with. So I applied to law school and got in and then decided to take a year to just travel and work and do whatever. Um, and through a whole series of events, I ended up in California. I actually, I had gone into some schools. I was on the East Coast when I had applied. I had, and then I, during that year, I decided I was in a relationship. I decided to come to California that I really wanted to go to California. So I applied to some other schools. I got in first on the waiting list at USC and they said, come out to California. Everybody gets in first on the waiting list. I said, great. So I came out to California and of course did not get in. But, you know, I was young and I was in California and I was never going back. Great weather. I just loved it. As soon as I got off the plane, I said, I'm not going back. So I, I went over to Loyola. I applied to the night school and then shifted to the day school. And that's, you know, how I got to stay. And it was, again, a different time. Law school was not half as expensive, not even a fraction as expensive as it is now. So I was walking down the hallway of, of school one day and I saw this little postcard. I could still see it today. I, I remember seeing it. It's a little postcard on a bulletin board that was announcing the formation of a news office. But Jerry Brown was governor then and he's governor now. He took a break in between to do a lot of things. But he was um, starting these new offices called the State Public Defender's Office because California is one of the few states that uh, represents indigent defendants all the way through their appeal. Most states only represent, if they at all, indigent defendants through the trial. And um, so they were starting an office called the State Public Defender's Office that was just focused on criminal appeals. And they were looking for an, an extern. And I didn't even know at that point, I just started law school. I didn't even know what a criminal appeal was, but something in that wording and something about it, I went, oh, that sounds pretty interesting. So I decided to apply and I got it. And it was an amazing experience. It was, I guess, like working in a startup, you know, it was just that energy and that focus and great people. And also right around that time, the, in California, the death penalty had been unconstitutional for a while, and it had just been declared constitutional again. So there were all these people on death row without attorneys. So they decided to make the focus of the state public defender's office just on death penalty appeals. And it was fascinating and amazing and really sort of in my wheelhouse of research and writing. And uh, I just loved it. So I did that for quite a while. And then... Um, got married, moved out of Los Angeles to Carmel and Monterey, but still was able to practice death penalty appeals. There were a bunch of us who had worked in the state public defenders and were doing private uh, appeals and, you know, under an umbrella of another organization. So we had each other to lean on, um, but we weren't necessarily working in an office. And one day I was sitting around with some friends. One was a doctor, one was a marine biologist. It's sort of like a joke, you, you know, marine biologist, a doctor and a lawyer walk into a bar. But anyway, we were discussing, you know, how we both all wanted to change. And the doctor's wife had just opened up a cookie store and there was something about that that really appealed to him. He said, I want to start a bakery. And I said, I'll start a bakery. And our other friend uh, said, I'll start a bakery. So ridiculously, we all decided to, to start a bakery. We knew nothing, nothing. And they wanted to make the breads. And I said, I'll make the desserts because I figured, how hard could this be? <laughs> well, it was really hard. It was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. 
because, uh, you know, you just don't multiply. Like if you need to make brownies for 500 people, you just don't multiply the recipe by 500. You, you know, there's a formula. you got to figure it out. So anyway, we, we were in Carmel. There's a lot of restaurants, a lot of tourists. So we started wholesaling. And then eventually we opened up three retail shops and did this for like three or four years. And then we sold everything. And um, I went back to the law for a while. And by that time, I had two little kids and reading about rapes and murders all day long became untenable. I just couldn't do that and come home to my beautiful children. So I knew I needed to figure out something else. And then one day again, just out of serendipity, I was reading the newspaper and there was an article about school gardens. And I, for whatever reason, I thought like, that is amazing. Now, I had never put my fingers in the dirt. I knew nothing. But the one thing that owning the bakery really did for me was like open up the right side of my brain. Like all of a sudden, having been in such an academic field, being able to work with my hands and be creative was just this, it was just like, you know, like the Wizard of Oz when everything went from black and white to color. It was just like an amazing experience. So I knew I wanted to do something a little more creative. And they were having a workshop the next day about school gardens. So I went to it and I was hooked and just like immediately I fell in love with the whole concept and teaching kids about science and math and reading using outdoor hands-on activities. And so I got real excited. My older son at that point was in second grade and I went back to the school and his teacher and I said, oh my God, you have to take this workshop, which she did. And then we brought the, um, the whole concept to the school and we built a school garden and then I really got into gardening and I became a master gardener and started a landscape business and a floral design business. When I do things, I sort of just go for it. And um, a couple years passed and my son who had been in second grade became, went to middle school. And I realized that I was really missing, even though I was working as a volunteer at the garden, we had started at the elementary school. I was really wanting to focus all my energy on school gardens. And there was this beautiful plot of land next to the middle school, a 10-acre plot of land that one of the teachers in the school, who was an ornithologist, had convinced the school district it was a Christmas tree farm and it had no habitat. You grew the trees, you cut them down. So there was no birds, there was nothing there. And he wanted to bring some habitat and some birds to this plot of land, which was right next to the school, so he could teach his students about birds and birding. And um, so he convinced them to do that. And by the time I got there, I said to him, oh, my God, this would be an amazing place to do a school garden. And he said, if you can raise the money, then let's go for it. So I learned how to write grants and raise money. And eventually this became my life for 11 years. And we started a nonprofit and it became this huge project with thousands of kids from the area coming there each year. And we had a garden, we had obviously an ornithology program, we grew native plants and we planted them all around the dunes in the area. We had an ocean literacy program, we did so many things. And we built a beautiful LEED certified cooking building. We had Alice Waters come to our grand opening. And this became my passion, it became my, you know, my life for 11 years. And ultimately we raised $5 million and created a beautiful, beautiful site, started a nonprofit. And I did that, that became my world. And then my kids grew up eventually and I realized that I couldn't 
write one more grant. <laughs> I just was done. So I left and that was very hard. And I um, moved up to San Francisco and I gave myself some time and I decided that I just really wanted to help people find work that they love to use all of the things I had learned in all of my ins and outs of doing things to help people do that for themselves. And that's what I've been doing for like the last five or six years. I love this story so much because I mean, there's a <laughs> lot that I love in it, but specifically hearing you talk, it's, well, it's a selfish sidebar. It's funny how things I often feel like are not coincidental. Like you and I could have had this conversation, you know, a year ago or, you know, however long it is that we've been on each other's radars. And for whatever reason, this is happening now. And I'm in such a period of change and reinvention that I'm like, okay, this isn't an accident. But I, so I love what you're saying about giving yourself permission to change at each of these steps along the way. I think that that's something that's really hard for a lot of folks is, especially when it's a situation that nothing is terrible, right? I think it's relatively easy to walk away from a bad situation, but I think it's much harder to walk away from something that's good, but not great. And it sounds like that's what you did a bunch of times, that it's not yeah. like you were so miserable and everything was so awful and you were being forced out and everyone was horrible. You know, I mean, <laughs> obviously I'm sure there were ups and downs, but at each point along the way in the story that you just told, it was either that chapter had come to an end, you were more interested in something else and wanted to pursue that curiosity, or it was a better fit for your lifestyle, or you know, it gave you more time with your kids or any of these things that it's just, I don't know, there's like such a big permission slip and everything that you just said that it's okay to want to change like just because you want to change. Absolutely. And the truth is we have many, many lives. We have many things that we can and should be doing in this world. There's not just one thing. You know, people get really tripped up by the words passion and purpose, but it's, and, and they get in the way because everybody waits for like that big moment when they find their passion or their purpose. And you know this really well with, you know, your recent, relatively recent love of hiking, first running and then hiking from a person that wasn't even really athletic, if I understand your story correctly. and it's about following your curiosity. Like if you just feel this like curiosity about something, it's really important to like push yourself to the next step because you never know what can unfold. And that's about just allowing yourself to just be still and listen to what the universe is whispering. Sometimes we get a big push, sometimes not such a great push, but a big push. Sometimes we just get like a little whisper and like a tiny little shove, but there are so many doors open to us at all times. And recently, I've really become very involved with this process called Designing Your Life, which is the most popular class at Stanford. There's a book, there's a workbook. And I took it and it just so resonated with me because it, it's so cohesive and, and coherent with what I believe, which is to just go out in the world and try things. And the tenets of it are to you know, to prototype, to just keep coming up with ideas, trying them, talk to people. And it's about being cur curious, trying stuff out, reframing problems. Often we think there are problems that we have that really aren't problems. We get stuck on the solution. I can't do that because I don't have the place to do it in, or I don't have enough people to do it with, or whatever reason we tell ourselves not to do things. And if we, we frame that, all of a sudden the problem goes away. 
And then you embrace the process and you create community, which is probably one of the biggest, most important things that you can do. And you know this well about because you're such an uh, expert at creating community. And it just is life changing. You just can, you know, through a series of exercises, you look at what you're weak and what gives you energy and what engages you. And then you mind map different ideas and you write three to four, five year plans of different things you could do for the next five years. And then you see what comes up and you just go, oh, that sounds like really exciting. I think I might want to try that. And let's say you decided, you know, I really want to take people to France and, you know, teach them cooking. And you go talk to people who actually do that. And you either get excited and you say, yes, that's what I want to do. Or you realize eh, I, that doesn't really sound so great. So then you go back to the drawing board. But it's a way of allowing yourself the opportunity to try different things and to open your mind to the fact that you can do many different things in your life. Yeah. I mean, I think that's it's so important. I've been thinking about this a lot. Let's see if I can communicate this in a way that makes sense. I think so often the hang up of I have to find my like one thing, right? Capital O, capital T. I think some of that comes from the fact that some of the most famous people in the world usually are famous because they're like the best at what they do, right? Whether that's in mm -hmm. sports or in music or in anything. And so many of those stories are, you know, I knew since I could take my first steps that I wanted to play tennis or that I wanted to be a singer or whatever those things are. And because those stories get so much popularity, I think that there's like a misconception that that's the norm, whereas I actually think that those folks are outliers for sure. It's just that their stories are all really well known. I think for most of us, or at least if I look at the sample size of friends and family with whom I've had like similar conversations, there's very few people who have a, I always knew I wanted to do whatever fill in the blank is, and then they actually want to do that forever. Like for so many other folks, it's like they're multi-passionate or, you know, something is the right fit for a certain phase in their life and then they want to do something else. And like the, everything that you're speaking to, I think, is so common. And yet I think it really is a big sticking point of, you know, what's wrong with me that I haven't found my thing, right? Or my exactly. purpose. Or I've given myself a really hard time about this, you know, over the years. I obviously have a different story to you, but again, like a very winding career path of doing things that on the surface seem like they don't relate to each other at all. And there's a lot of potential for the dialogue, like internal dialogue of, you know, what's wrong with you that you can't just stick with something. And I think it took me a long time to accept that about myself and to accept that while the job might change or the industry might change, the skills that you learn and like everything that you've experienced comes with you, right? Like something that you learn how to do in one job, you can totally you know, maybe law and a bakery don't seem related, but I'm sure there's things that you learned in your career sure. in one that then became useful in the other. And then that snowball just kind of keeps rolling. Exactly. And yeah, I learned grit. I learned how to work hard. I learned all sorts of things as a lawyer that I was then able to use as a baker that I was then able to use as a, a landscape designer. And and what you say is absolutely true. It, there are very few people. There are very few Yo-Yo Ma's, Steven Spielberg's who know what it is they want to do. And most of us don't. And most of us like just sort of resign ourselves to like, well, I guess I'm going to do social media my whole life or publicity or whatever, because this was the first job I fell into and I got good at it. And even though I don't like it, I don't know what else I could do. And there are so many things you can do. And a great Elizabeth Gilbert's book, uh, I think it's Practical Magic, 
is it practical magic? Uh, or big something ma- I magic. think it's big magic. Big, yeah. big magic. Yeah. The, the, that great movie uh, is practical magic uh, with um, anyway, but anyway, big magic. And then she just did a, uh, Ted has a new podcast called Ted talks or something. And she, I just was listening to her recently and her whole, her whole take on creativity is so wonderful because it is also about curiosity and following your curiosity. And she believes, she has this great concept that I love. She believes that ideas are just sort of free flowing and they sort of drop down on certain people. And you either hear it and say it and say, yes, I'm gonna do that. And if you don't act on it, it will go to the next person. And she talks about this wonderful story that, she and uh, Ann Patchett, the author, were met once. And so she was going to write some book about, I forget what. And, and, and she worked with the book and it like wasn't, it wasn't happening. So she put it aside. She met Ann Patchett. They were talking about like different projects they were wor- working on. And Ann Patchett said, I'm working on this book. And she described the plot that was precisely what Elizabeth Gilbert had put aside. And she just realized that Somehow the idea had gone. And when they first met each other, they gave each other a kiss. And she thinks like in the kiss, like a kiss on the lips. And she said something in the kiss, like the idea went from my body into hers. But she believes that, you know, there are so many creative ideas out there and it's up to us to grab them. And, go, and run with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved that episode. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. I mean, I love Liz Gobert in general, but the, yeah, that episode specifically and this idea of you know, following curiosity and essentially like what I took from it, I don't even think these were the words that she said, but what I took from that and what I am taking from what you're saying too, it's like not being arrogant enough to think that we know what's going to happen, right? It's like, we just, you just don't know, right? Like you can be curious about something or interested in something. And so then the next step is in whatever the smallest form possible, like just try it. And it's possible that something sounds really interesting or really like a good fit for you, but the fantasy of the thing and the reality of thing of the thing are really different. And you try it and you find out, Hey, that's not for me. And that's totally fine. Then you go do something else, or maybe you try it and you think, Oh, this actually is what I want to do next. And Yeah, I I love this a lot because this is something that I'm trying to cultivate in my own, like in myself and in my own communities is like just permission to try shit. Like you don't have to know what's going to happen. And as you say, to to just, all you need to do is take a tiny little step. You know, sometimes we think, oh my God, in order for me to accomplish that, it's going to take this, 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 and we overwhelm ourselves out of the idea. And sometimes just a small tweak of your life makes all the difference in the world. Uh, one of the things we do is this gauge called work, life, health, and play. And you just sort of gauge like where you are, you know, from zero to a hundred in your work life, your play, your love, and your health. And you see like what's out of kilter. And let's say you're saying, I'm not playing enough. So what could you do to like a tiny little thing, like, you know, to just like move that gauge a little bit. And maybe it's taking a ceramics class, or maybe it's going to, well, you know, square dancing class or whatever. And sometimes just like doing that, just like changes you. And it just like opens up the gates and you feel so much better. And the gauge just moves to much healthier balances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also like this idea too, that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. I definitely have a history of really big changes. I'm very comfortable with the, let's just burn it down and do something else. And I think sometimes that is the right approach. 
but it's been a really good learning lesson for me that like, sometimes I actually don't have to burn down my entire life. Like all I need to do is like go outside and take a walk. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. Or, like, you know, exactly. it's not that I feel so terrible about myself and everything's the worst. It's like, oh, I just need to buy bigger jeans because my jeans are tight and that makes me feel right. like uncomfortable, right? It's like these like, little <laughs> things sometimes. And sometimes at the end of the day, it does still need to be a more significant change. But I think like you're saying that there is a power in taking small steps, right? Like if you're doing one more thing per week, that's just for play or for fun. Okay. Like maybe that's enough. Maybe it doesn't have to be some huge thing, but it's like, you won't know that until you like give yourself permission to do, to just like try some new stuff. And that one little thing a week could turn into something else. You know, all of a sudden you realize like your creativity part of your brain has been closed down for so long and it just opens up your floodgates. It's like when you read a great book or you listen, go to a, hear a great lecture and um, all of a sudden you realize, wow, I want to do more of that in my life. And like watching a great cooking show on, on Netflix and you realize that, oh, I haven't cooked in a while and that. It's really exciting and creative. I want to get back into the kitchen. And you just like tweak your life a little bit that way. And it just starts feeling you feel more grounded and more balanced. Yeah. So I'm curious then, because it sounds like you're someone that is comfortable with change and with doing new things. How do you think about sort of when it's time to make a change versus when it's time to stick out the thing that you have like poured so much time and energy into, like along the way of each of these different changes? I'm sure there was some kind of, well, should I, is this just a rough patch? Do I just need to push through this? Do I want to do this other thing? How do you think about that? Well, I think it's a really hard question. And I think, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about this, you know, when, when is the time to like lay it down and move on? And when is the time to keep pushing? You know, sure. All of us hit times in our work life when, or any part of our lives when, you know, it's just not feeling good. We're feeling stuck. And you just hang in there a little bit and things change for whatever reason, unexplicably, but things get better. Versus, I can't do this anymore. I, I want to change. I'm ready for a change. Or for whatever reason, the universe is like knocking you on the side of the head with a frying pan saying you better change. And it's a hard question. The times that I have made changes in my life and in my career, it's never overnight. It starts out with like a sort of a low rumble. Um, and then I start thinking about it and I start thinking about it a little bit more. And, you know, eventually, for whatever reason, the, the scale tips more in the direction of starting something new than of staying. Sometimes it's life. You know, you have kids, you get married, you move to a new community. Life just forces the change on you. Um, and sometimes it's just a desire to make changes in your life. And the only thing you have control over is maybe to change your work situation or to write a book or to take up painting or, you know, we go through seasons of our life. And I think it's just important to stay tuned into um, what season you're in and what, what you're just needing in mm -hmm. a real sense and in more of a, a, a global sense in your life. Yeah. That's, I really appreciate the honesty of your answer. The reason that I asked isn't because I was hoping that you were going to have like, here's the three steps that you need to, in order to make a change. But 
And I say that like sort of in jest, but sort of not, because I feel like being uncertain or like wanting to make a change or being stuck, like it's such an uncomfortable place and we've all been there and like all you want is to be out of it. And so that is the time when we're most likely to be, you know, what is the six step life hack for this or whatever. And like just that reminder from someone like you who has gone through so many changes, I'm sure some really successful, some probably not to have the reminder of like, it is a messy process. There is never really a way to know 100% if it's going to work out. And also this idea that it's not overnight. Like obviously you just condensed a lifetime's worth of work, right? Into like a six minute story. Sure. But like these decisions take time. Like it's usually not, you just wake up one day and you're done. Maybe that happens. But I think about for me, you know, quitting drinking, quitting different jobs, changing, you know, relationships, like anything, it's really never an overnight thing. And so like, okay, it's fine to sit with it for a while. It's fine to like be in that messy place. And then what you spoke to is so relatable, this idea of like, at some point the scales tip. And I think of it for me that like, I really never make a significant change in my life until the pain of not making the change outweighs the fear of making the change. And I can't force that. Like I have tried to, but like, it's a really organic, you know, I'm so sick of having the same conversation. You know, I'm sick of hearing myself talk about the same things. My poor friends are sick of hearing me, you know, and it's just, you get to the point where it's like the pain of being stuck is worse. Like even just slightly outweighs all of my many fears about change. And then it becomes worth it. And like, you're either at that point or you're not. Exactly. And the truth is change is never comfortable. And we always have to go through a process of like, realizing maybe you're not happy, realizing that you need to change, you don't want to change because it means like you everything else is going to change, you know, it's sort of like what's that that game where you pull blocks out and you try not to let the whole thing fall back, fall down. Oh yeah, yeah, game. Django, yeah, yeah. Django, yeah. yeah. And you know, so there's that there's that tiptoeing around like if I pull this block out of here will my whole tower fall? Um and it's scary. And the thing though is everybody gets scared. Everybody is uncomfortable. Again, I remember Liz Gilbert was about to give a TED talk and they were interviewing her backstage and they said, are you nervous? She said, well, of course I'm nervous. Everybody's nervous. Al Gore's here. He's nervous. Um, Bill Gates is here. He's nervous. I mean, we think we're supposed to like be in life in this sort of flawless kind of way. And it's messy and we can't be in life in that way. And the other thing, too, is that everybody does things differently. I happen to be astrologically, I have like, I don't know, eight planets in air. Everything needs to be filtered through my head and needs to be filtered through my mouth. I don't feel good until I like talk it out. I'm the same way. (laughs) I talk to my friends. I talk to my therapist. I like I have to like get it out of my body in a verbal kind of way. Uh, my son has a lot of water and he needs to sort of sit with it and get it out of his body in a more emotional kind of way. Um, you know, some people are fire signs and they need to like just take action and they need to like hike the AZT or the Pacific. I'm sure you have a lot of fire in your chart too, I would guess. But, you know, they need to like get it out of their bodies. So people have like different ways of like processing and we need to honor who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so well said. I mean, and, and again, it's like that the one the same thing that works for one person is maybe not going to work for someone else and that's okay. Exactly. Yeah. And the other the other thing that's important, which is another thing that I learned from the designing your life process, 
is you need to look for coherence between your work life and, and your life view, work view and your life view. So like, you know, why do you work? What's the, what, what, why, do, why do you believe in work? Why do you think we work? And, you know, obviously one of the answers is I work to make money, but there's a lot of answers to why you work. And then what is your life view? Why are we here? Why do you think you're on this planet? What do, what, what do you want to be here for? And then you try to, you know, put the circles like next to each other and the thing like in the middle that sort of, you know, overlap is what's called coherence. So obviously, if you believe, if your life view is that I'm here to really make a difference in this earth and to try to make the earth a healthier, better place, and you're working for Exxon, you're going to be miserable. You have mm-hmm. your work view and your life view are just like not coherent. So it's really important to do this. And it changes. You know, we change. So it's important to do this exercise to make sure that what you're doing is coherent with what you believe. And it's very powerful. Yeah. I'd actually love to hear from your own life and work, some like specific examples of that, of things you've done at different periods, maybe to like get in alignment or what alignments looked like. Because I think that's one of those things that I don't know that anyone would listen to that and disagree. Like, oh yeah, of course, if the things that you believe and what you're spending your time on, if that is coherent, sure, you'll be happier. But then sort of the disconnect between what that actually looks like. I'd love to hear anything in that that you would like to share, either changes you made in order to get more in alignment or any like beliefs you hold about, you know, how you've built a meaningful life and career, anything in there I'd love to hear about. Well, I guess I'm a person, I I keep coming back to astrology, but I have like five or six planets in Libra. I'm like a Libra through and through. So I, a huge piece that makes me tick is to, to do good things, to make this world a better place, which is why I chose law school, which is why I probably chose criminal appeals, which is why I chose beauty and bakery and gardens and things like that, because all of it makes this world better. I also really love beauty and things that you know, balance and family and kids. So, so everything I do is, is about um, trying to do good things in the world, trying to do good things for other people to make other people feel good. Uh, And when I haven't done that, so most of the direction that I move in is towards that. But there Mm -hmm. have been times when I haven't done that. And there have been jobs that I have done that, would just not a fit for me. I remember there was a period of time that I worked for legal aid and all I did was write out, um, what are those called when, when um, people aren't allowed to see each other, you know, orders, uh, restraining, restraining orders. orders. Yeah. So all day long I was dealing with people not liking each other or doing violent things to each other, or just like being mean to each other and restraining them from seeing each other. And, I really didn't like it. It just like it, it, the energy of it and the, and all of it was just so such not a fit for me. And um, I, I remember just really being unhappy in that job. Uh, I'm also a person because of who I am that I love working with other people. I love collaborating. I love forming partnerships. I'm so much more energized by working with other people than I am doing all of it by myself, even though I like being by myself too, but the energy comes from collaboration. And when I'm not collaborating, I'm like very, I'm not as, 
I don't do as much. I don't, I don't accomplish as much. I don't feel as good. I'm not happy as happy. But when I am collaborating, I jump out of bed. I'm really excited. Uh, I remember when you were talking about this last time, when you were talking about your hiking trip and how much better it felt to be hiking with other people uh, versus being out there by yourself. And that's sort of how I feel in my work and in my life. So there are certain things that I have learned that are key for me when I'm thinking about like what it is I want to do or what projects I want to take on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's a recent, I don't know how you define recent, maybe this year, has there, have there been any changes that you have made to get more in alignment? That's a very good question. Um, well, again, this is, you know, I've started lots and lots of businesses and lots of done careers. And at a certain point, you know, the, uh, at a certain point, I got tired. You know, I just the, just the thought of like re-energizing myself to go in a new direction. You know, I had this career business. It wasn't quite what I wanted it to be. It was leaning a little bit more towards helping people with their resumes than it was more towards the heart stuff and the, you know, the energizing stuff. Um, it just wasn't quite right. And I found myself really enjoying the things that weren't paying me more than I was enjoying the things that were paying me. And I needed to like really think about, and I realized that I was at a point in my life and a point in my career when I just like wanted to be creative. I mean, if I had had all the money in the world, you know, I would have just wanted to take two years off and go write a book or have a studio or learn more things about art and creativity. And I could do those things, but I also had to find a space to be able to work and make some money and earn a living. And that's one of the things about changing careers so often is, you know, there are many of my friends that did the same job for many, many years, and they were able to retire and, you know, have pensions and, you know, they don't have to think about it anymore. And as a creative person, you know, I'll probably be working forever. And that's okay. But you just, sometimes it's, it's, very, very difficult to align what you need to be doing creatively in your life with what you need to be doing in order to make a living. Yeah. And so this last year, I spent like a lot of time really thinking about how I can bring those aspects together. I have this interview project called How Did You Do That? I just love asking people about how they ended up doing what they're doing. It's like one of my favorite questions. I One of the things I love about living in a city and taking Lyft is like asking the Lyft driver, you know, like, what do you do? Why are you doing this? What else are you doing? I just am a very curious person. And it's a question that always, you know, creates fascinating answers and you meet wonderful people. And truthfully, most people are doing what they're doing as, as am I through serendipity. They just fell into something or they happened to be doing something or they met this person. And stories, as you know, are wonderful. So I love this interview project and I want to make it into a book and I would just love to spend all my time on it. And I realized that it didn't have to be all or nothing. You know, I was making myself miserable thinking, I don't want to do these other things. And I realized, you know, I can take a month and just work on the book, or I can take two days a week and just work on the book, that if I organize my time enough that I could do everything I wanted to do. And a lot of it was just a headspace, just saying to myself, my whole life is creative. Everything I'm doing is creative. It's just not the work 
versus the creativity. Mm -hmm. And then I created this class relaunch, which brings together all the things that I loved. I really started to think about, okay, what do you love and what is missing? And what I love is helping people find work that they love. I love this designing your life process. I love working with people, groups of people. I love writing. I became a wild writing teacher. Um, I, I, I was able to create a course that brought together really my right and left side of my brain. And so in doing that, I feel so much happier. Um, and I feel like the universe has, you know, once again, opened up to, I don't know what's next, but to more creative opportunities. Mm -hmm. I love this idea that you said specifically when you were having the fantasy of, oh, I want to work on this book and I wish I could just work on this book full time and kind of stepping back and realizing that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Like I've definitely gone down that same sort of path of, oh, you know, if I won the lottery, this, that, or the other, you know, and to think that a certain project can only come to fruition if you could work on it all the time. When the truth is, honestly, I would be miserable working on one thing all the time. Like that's why I've had all the different sort of jobs right. and careers and creative projects and stuff. And I find if I'm only doing one thing, the pressure on that one thing can be enough to cause paralysis for me personally. Exactly. And so it's like, yeah, it's great to be able to have the space to focus on things, but we can make a lot more progress, I think, than, I, than we often think in smaller chunks, right? Like working on something a day a week or two days a week, like that's not nothing. You can definitely move the chains down the field doing that. And, you know, I thought, especially with writing, I'm working on my first book right now too. And um, when I was working on the first draft before I left for my hike, you know, there were a couple of times where I would try to set aside, you know, I'm going to work on this and nothing but this. And then it was, it was too much, <laughs> it was yeah. like too stressful. Yeah. And I don't know, I mean, I'm sure different people are different in that regard, but yeah, this idea that it doesn't have to be all or nothing and that you are responsible for basically within like your available resources and like what's possible for you designing the life that hopefully lets you do as many of the things that bring you exactly. joy as possible. And it just, it might not look the way that the initial dream fantasy of, you know, I'm going to go to Tuscany and be in a villa and write <laughs> every day. And like, you know, okay. So if it's not going to be that, that doesn't mean that I don't get to do it at all. Like it might look exactly. different, but it could still be beautiful. Exactly. And as you just said, there's so many ways to design a life. And that's, you know, what, what is it you want? What is it you want? So I'm saying I want to be creative. I want to feel like my life is, you know, has different creative outlets. Um, I want to, I, I choose to live in this city. It's a very expensive city. How can I live here in a way that I can afford it? I can get roommates. I can, you know, do things in a certain way where instead of saying, oh, I wish I could have like a big, beautiful apartment all to myself, I can say, wow, if I get a roommate, I get to like do my creative pursuits much more. And isn't that exciting? So, so much of it is how we tell the story to ourselves. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and as you just said, forcing yourself to just do one thing, that's like saying, if you're a painter, you can only work on one painting. And my brain is such like, I get so many downloads a day. Like I'll read a great article or I will hear about a person doing some really cool thing. Or I was just talking to a friend who's an artist and she's doing these amazing paintings. And we were talking about ways we can collaborate together in a way that I didn't even, when I woke up this morning was not even in my wheelhouse of thinking. And all of a sudden we came up with some like really cool project we could do together. So 
it's it's keeping the channels open and it's also realizing that life never comes wrapped the way we think it's going to. Yeah, yeah. We're waiting for this gift to arrive and we have this idea that um, it's going to look a certain way. There's this wonderful poem by Naomi Shihab Nye about, um, it's here, I think I even have it. I can just, I love this poem. Um, I just read it to my class the other day. It's called Missing the Boat. Can I, can I read it? Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. It's called, it's called Missing the Boat by Naomi Shihab Nye. It is not so much that the boat passed and you failed to notice it. It's more like the boat stopping directly outside your bedroom window, the captain blowing the signal horn, the band playing a rousing march, the boat shouted, waving bright flags, its silver hull blinding in the sunlight. But you had this idea you were going by train. You kept checking the timetable, digging for tracks. And the boat got tired of you, so tired it pulled up the anchor and raised the ramp. The boat bobbed into the distance, shrinking like a toy, at which point you probably realized that you had always loved the sea. Oh, that's so good. I know. I mean, yeah, it's just this idea that it's probably not going to look the way that you think it's going to look, which doesn't mean that it's not okay to really care about and like hold on to the things that do matter. But even when you were describing, okay, you know, you want to live in San Francisco more than you want to have your own place, right? You want to do creative work more than, you know, so it's, it's, I feel like everything's a series of trade-offs, right? This idea that you can have everything you want, but you can't have it all at the same time. And you can't necessarily have it in the way that you want it to look. And it's like this idea, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, that some things matter more than others and some things have to matter more than others. And so, you know, if for, you know, I I thought about this when I came home from my hike, like I knew that, you know, post-trail depression was something that I was really susceptible to and that there was a lot going on in my personal life. And so I thought, okay, my mental health matters more than everything else. It matters more than, you know, honest story sharing. It matters more than, you know, doing whatever else the things are. And at certain periods of time, maybe other things will matter more, but it's like exactly having to ask yourself those questions of like, okay, well, if I can't have all 50 things, like what are the things that I'm not willing to compromise on? And then can I stay open to whatever that winds up looking like? Exactly. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, we have seasons of our lives, you know, like there are times when one thing matters more. When, you know, when I was a mom, well, I'm always a mom, but when my kids were younger, you know, it mattered a lot to me that whatever I did, I was home for them when school was over. And it was the most joyful part of my day. I loved this part of my day. So I chose work that allowed me to do that, even if it wasn't the work like part of me really wanted to like do big work and work for the Clinton Foundation or Charity Water or, you know, somewhere out there doing huge work. And but I wanted to be with my kids. So I just, you know, you make a choice. And so you take the essence of what it would feel like to work for Charity Water and you try to make do good things in your community, whether it's through the work you do, whether it's through volunteering, whether it's through helping other people and still be home with your kids. So I, I think it's it, it, it takes thinking about, as you just said, what what is the essence that I want to hold on to here? What is important to me in my life now? And one of the great things about like writing these like five and nobody really a five year plan is sort of a misnomer because usually if plans are really two years long. Like you, you know, I think things have a life of a couple, two or three years. Um, 
you know, it's sort of like you see it spread out and you see, okay, if I do this this year and then next year I can do that. And then you, where is this going to grow to? And so when you're feeling in the middle of the night, oh my God, what am I doing? And I'm not doing enough. And you can remind yourself that you're on a path and it's a process and you're just walking. You're just walking towards wherever you're walking towards. And it's going to evolve into what it's going to evolve into. And you just have to have that faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. Something that I wanted to ask you about that might or might not be related to what we're talking about, but I've heard you say that unlocking impossible doors is one of your superpowers. <laughs> and I would love to hear a story or two about that. All right. I have a good story. I have a good story. So I just like, yeah, if you say no to me, that's like, I'm like a dog with a bone. Um, so when we were starting, when we first started my nonprofit, it was called Me Earth, but we used to refer to it as the Habitat. Um, we wanted to have like a big grand opening uh, for when the, the at first it was just like a program and then it became this like bigger nonprofit. So we wanted to comm- commemorate that. And I really wanted Alice Waters to be there because she was like, you know, the, the mother of school gardens and I just really respected her. So I wrote a, um, I tried to figure out how do I get in touch with Alice Waters? And then I wrote, a, I think I called her office and I spoke to her assistant and he said, no way. Alice is going to, I mean, she's so busy and she's got so much going on, never going to happen. And I said, well, can I call you back in like a month? Can I keep like bugging you? And he said, yeah, you can keep on bugging me, but you know, it's not going to happen. So over the course of a few months, you know, I would call him and I would, you know, talk to him and I would say, this would mean so much. And we just honor her so much. And the kids would feel so great. It would be such a boost for the community. And, you know, I was not getting far fast. So finally, he said to me one day, you know, he like sort of gave me like a little, a little bone. He said, you know, Alice really loves snail mail and she loves beautiful things. So maybe if you sent her something to describe what it is you wanted, you'd have like maybe a baby chance. Like he opened the door like a little crack. So I said, great. So I got this beautiful fold out um, photo album, you know, one of those albums that's like an accordion and just had this beautiful ribbon. And I had a photographer take beautiful pictures of the kids at the habitat at work doing their thing. And then I wrote her, hand wrote her a beautiful note and, and said how much, how honored we would be if she came to this opening day ceremony. And I mailed the package off and the, the person who was her assistant said he would promise me he would give it to her. And he did. And she said yes. And <laughs> it was like unbelievable. So much so, in fact, when the day arrived, she came and she was lovely and wonderful. And she looked at me and she said, how did you get me here? Like, who are you? <laughs> And she said, I like can't believe how busy I am. And I have to fly to New York tomorrow and I have to fly to France the next day. And like when I saw in my calendar that I was coming here, I like couldn't believe it. And um, but she said it in a very nice way. It was not like, who are you? And I said, you know, I was just like really persistent because I really wanted you here. And it was just great to have her. And in fact, it was a real life changing moment for our program because she was walking around And she said, what you really need here at that point, we were 
you know, in the midst of building this, but we still had a lot of scrub land and it wasn't built up in any way, shape or form. So she took, she looked at a little piece and she said, you need a pizza oven because you need to have a place where community can gather. And there's nothing like cooking together that brings a community together. I said, done. So we raised the money and we got the pizza oven and we built an outdoor kitchen and we had amazing community events. And she was a thousand percent right. It was like a changing moment for our program. That's such a good story. How did I get here? <laughs> so good. Um, so, okay. So this dovetails into something else that I wanted to ask you. I know like in yeah. your current work as a career and business strategist, I know that one of the things that you love to teach your clients is how to become more gutsy in their communications, mm-hmm. which like completely rings out in that story that you just told. So, I mean, obviously that was an example of that, but I'm really interested in this idea of like being brave or being gutsy as something that's teachable. I think sometimes those qualities are thought of as like, well, you're either brave or you're not, right? Or like it either comes naturally to you to be the person who's going to call the assistant a million times or it doesn't. And so I love that idea that it's, that it's teachable. So, I mean, I don't know if there's anything specific in that that you want to share, whether it's like some tips for being more gutsy or, you know, I don't know, and anything in that I'm interested in. Well, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before is that everything is uncomfortable. You know, everybody has different things that make them uncomfortable. And that certainly makes certain people more uncomfortable than others. Uh, so sometimes you just have to take a deep breath and do it. I mean, I remember reading some of your posts when you were hiking And there were certain days when you went, oh, my God, I I feel horrible and I can't believe that I have to, you know, go up another 10,000 feet or whatever the day involved. And you just realized all your only choice was to put one foot in front of the other, that you couldn't stay where you were. And the only way to get to another place was to climb that mountain. And I always found those posts of yours so inspirational because that is true. I mean, sometimes we don't want to do it and it feels horrible and it's scary or you feel like you'd rather just crawl up in your sleeping bag and not move, but you got to, you got to do it. Um, So sometimes it's just a matter of telling yourself you have no choice. If you really want that thing you think you want, you have to do it. Sometimes it's a matter of just having grit. And I love, uh, who is the woman that talks about grit? Angela something. Yeah. I can put the link in the show notes. I know what you mean. I read her book too. Yeah. Angela Duckworth. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she believes, and I believe that grit can be taught. And in fact, she's, you know, working a lot on trying to teach grit in the school systems because more than intelligence and more than personality, grit is something that helps move you forward. Just the importance of it and being able to hang on through the storms is just a very, very important thing to do. And the other thing that I think is, is really important is to, like you and I were talking about before, is to just take little steps, just like tiny little steps. And, and Alex Franzen has like a wonderful, as an example, a wonderful email template that she uses called Feel No Do, where you write an email to somebody and you keep it short and for, you start off with what you want the person to feel. You know, dear so-and-so, I admire you so much. I follow you on Instagram. You inspire me. Uh, what do you want them to know? You know, I am putting on a, um, an event, and uh, I'm, I'm this and this person. I run a nonprofit. I'm putting on an event, and it would mean the world to us 
If you could be there, what do you want them to do? It would be great if we could get on the phone or have a cup of coffee or do something to continue this conversation. Mm -hmm. So one, two, three, feel no do. And there's something about reaching out to somebody, whether you do it verbally or whether you do it through an email, when you have that structure that really helps get the words out of your mouth. So that's the other thing I would do. And then finally, you know, sometimes it's a matter of knowing what you're good at. I was listening to, you know, the podcast, How You Built That with Roz, Raz, whatever. He had, he interviewed uh, the guy that started WeWork, which was a great interview. And he was talking about um, how he, again, serendipity, met his partner in an elevator and they just like hit it off. They really liked each other. And his partner is, is an Israeli and like really good with people and really good at moving things forward. And he's more of an introvert, but really good at like the technical stuff and, you know, getting websites up and just getting like the, the, the background stuff done. So together they formed a very formidable team. So sometimes it's really important to like work with somebody if you just absolutely can't find it in yourself to make that call or go out in the world and and, uh, interview somebody or talk to somebody, find a friend and either help, you know, support each other or have a mastermind or form some sort of partnership where the person that's good at it will do the talking out in the world and you do the things that you're really good at because everybody has something that they're really good at. Everybody does. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of knowing yourself and what your comfort zone is. Yeah. I love that, the idea that there's more than one way to get from point A to point B. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, I, again, I think so much of like what I'm loving about everything that you're saying about this conversation is the reality that things are like messy and complicated and there aren't, you know, just do these two things and then you'll be brave forever. <laughs> like, it's not like right. that. I, I think I think about this too. I had to get to this place with the podcast, you know, for the first couple seasons, everyone mostly that I had on was someone that I knew somewhat, either they were a friend or a friend of a friend, or, you know, we had been some kind of colleagues or collaborators somewhere in the online space. And now I'm at the point where virtually everyone that I'm having on the show is some kind of cold pitch, right? Or an introduction from a friend, but it's a lot of times just reaching out to people, right? And whose work that I love and want to have them yes. on the show. And I finally had to have the conversation with myself where I'm like, literally the worst thing that's going to happen is they're either going to say no or not respond. Like, I'm not going to die. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. But it's funny how we make it into this, like such a big deal. I think so much of like being gutsy when I think about for me, like comes down to resilience and to reminding myself that it's not the end of the world. Very few things are life and death situations and being able to get some perspective. It's it's actually funny that you brought up the, like the hiking and how to keep going when you don't want to keep going as an example. Cause I get that question from people a lot of, what do you do on really hard days? How do you keep pushing forward when you don't want to? And for me, it's, I always wish I had a better answer, but I'm like, that situation is so extreme that you don't have another choice. Like, right. you sure, I could sit down, but if I sit down forever, eventually I'm going to run out of water. Eventually it's going to be nighttime. I'm going to run out of food. Like you, you literally could die, right? So it's yes. like, you have to keep going. But I think about that as a creative because it's it's almost like I have to force myself into a version of that situation. So I think about- mm-hmm. 
you know, okay, well, if someone has said yes to being on the podcast and we're going to be talking at 9 a.m. that day, okay, well, then I have to show up because it's on the calendar. It's the reason that I like almost pre-commit to things because then you kind of have to show up for it. Right. You know, if people have right. paid to come to a retreat that I'm hosting, exactly. okay, well, then I'm going to figure out how to host the best retreat possible. And so I think there's something like that too, when you said about knowing yourself, like I know that I'm someone who does need some kind of external accountability or some kind of deadline or like something on the line, some kind of stakes. And so then I have to create that for myself and that's fine. So then I just run my business that way. I, I agree. I agree. And I think your point about like, what's the worst thing can happen and nobody's going to die here. I mean, it puts it in perspective. The actually the subject matter of my newsletter today was called chickens and buttons. And what I talked about was how, when sometimes when I'm just like, lamenting. I just don't have the energy to do this. I don't know if I can. I think about my grandparents who came from Poland and immigrated here knowing nobody, having no money, not speaking any English with, you know, the tens of thousands of millions of other people that immigrated here. And they would do anything. They would like pluck chickens and, you know, kill them and pluck them and sell them for the Sabbath dinner. They would sell buttons. They would, you know, work in sweatshops, whatever it took. And then they'd go learn English at night but their movement was forward. They just had this drive to make it work. And so sometimes when I, um, when I can't find it in myself, I'll just even say the phrase chickens and buttons. And Alex and I sort of have a joke and she'll sometimes just text me chickens and buttons. And it just reminds me like to just no matter what, to just keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. So tell me about a time then when you took a risk and it didn't work out. Good question. Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by not working out. Not everything was financially successful, uh, but, but I always, I can't think of anything that I've done that in some way I didn't get something from the experience. Mm -hmm. um, so it really depends on, you know, I, sure, I go into everything wanting it to be financially successful. And if it's not, like ultimately we sold the bakeries because they weren't making enough money to make the energy of which, you know, getting up at 4 a.m. and working, you know, it's just so much work. It just wasn't worth it. But I learned so much from doing that and it was such a joy to do it and to figure it out. And like at the end of it, I knew how to make cheesecakes for 800 people and brownies. And, you know, I became a baker and I was so proud of my accomplishments. So it worked out in that way, even though it probably was not the biggest financial success in the world. Um, so I, I think you get something out of everything. Mm -hmm. It's just how you let yourself frame it. Yeah, I, I like that a lot, especially because it doesn't ignore the reality of the fact that sometimes a choice or you know a business or whatever doesn't meet the goals or the criteria that it needs to meet in order to keep going, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't worth doing. Exactly. And I don't mean that in terms of like a put on the rosy glasses to like rewrite failure. Like I think failure is fine. I think 
You know, if, if the original goal was for those bakeries to be profitable enough to keep doing that and that didn't happen, then that was a failure to meet the goal. But it doesn't mean you're a failure as a person and it doesn't right, mean that right. you don't take something from it. But I think that this is a lot of what helps to let change be possible is to be able to look at a situation and say, okay, these are the things that are working. This is what I've gotten from this. These are the things that maybe aren't. Okay, so maybe I'm going to let this go. I'm going to take what I've learned and I'm going to move on to the next thing. That it's like you said, this continuous forward process. Exactly. And, and it also, you know, back to the, back to the point of when, when is it time to quit? You know, sometimes in order to make something successful, sometimes in order to make something financially successful, you have to do certain things. You have to maybe go on Facebook. You have to do some live webinars. You have to do some Facebook lives. You have to do whatever one does these days. And I've personally, when I balance out doing those things and adding to the noise of that versus trying to to put my own mark on things in my own individual way, um, I, I, you have to decide like how important it is to, to succeed in like maybe a financial way or succeed in the way that other people would look at it and say, oh, look at you, you have a seven figure business or whatever the, the thing is. And um, are you willing to do that? Mm-hmm. What are you willing to do? What, and, and if you're not willing to do it, why aren't you willing to do it? Is it fear? Is it discomfort? Or is it something like real that's just like not something, it's not worth it to you? And how can you do it in a different way? And will it be successful if you do do it in a different way? So it's a series of questions that you need to ask yourself. And it's always very, very difficult to decide, especially when you've put a lot of energy into something, when you're more than halfway across a bridge, whether or not it's worth it to just say, this was a great idea, but it's just not working. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I think so much of what you're speaking to is how necessary it is to be honest with yourself, first and foremost. Like, because that question, you know, what is it going to take to reach X goal? And are you willing to do it? Sometimes that can be a really humbling question because it's, I mean, and that was for me in terms of getting off the PCT, like the answer was no. I was, I, I knew what it would take, right? Hiking whatever, 25 miles a day for 50 more days. And I wasn't sleeping and, you know, all the things I've talked about in other situations before, but like, yeah, just no, I wasn't willing to do it. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then like that has to be okay sometimes. And it gives you such amazing, maybe you don't see it now and maybe you didn't see it then, but the self-knowledge that you earned and got from making that decision for yourself will, will inspire you later on down the road, will remind you later on down the road when you're making another decision about something that maybe is totally unrelated, but the fact that you had the courage to say to yourself, I can't do what it takes. This is not going to work. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to be healthy. This is just not good for my body. This is not good for my soul. That moment will carry to something else in the future. Mm -hmm. And that's how we evolve as people. Yeah. So I know that we've talked a lot about your career and what that journey's looked like. But on a more personal note, I know that part of your story, like so many people's stories, includes a lot of pain and loss. Mm -hmm. And so in whatever way that you feel comfortable with, can you share how those experiences and events have impacted and changed you or maybe even how they relate to some of the things we've been talking about? Well, I've actually had some pretty intense 
things happen. Um, my first pregnancy, I was, <laughs> I was like noticing I was seven months pregnant and I was healthy. I was great. I felt great. And, but I had never gotten an ultrasound. The doctor never really measured my stomach. And I was noticing we started to take birth classes. And I noticed that I was like so much bigger than everybody else in the room. And like grocery clerks were starting to say to me, oh my God, are you like delivering tomorrow? And I still had like a good two and a half months to go. And um, so finally I said to my doctor, hey, what's the story? And he did an ultrasound and then the ultrasound machines were really small and not very effective and realized that we were having twins. So, whoa, we're having twins. That's like sort of intense, but you know, you move from it being intense and being in shock to it being a moment of joy. But he had like this little buzz in his head that said, why don't you go over to the hospital tomorrow and go on the big machine and we'll, you know, I just want to check some stuff out. So it turns out that the babies were conjoined. We didn't know to the degree that they were conjoined. We had to go up to Stanford. We had to deliver early. It was intense. There was like a whole series, as you can imagine, of events. The doctors at Stanford were wonderful, but it, you know, it was very intense. And um, we were very lucky that an a, a, a ex-husband of a good friend of ours was a doctor at Stanford. So we had like a normal doctor amidst all the surgeons and the millions of people. The babies were born. They were beautiful. They were joined by uh, just their liver. Uh, so they wanted to do surgery to separate them. One died, the names were Zachary and Max, and uh, Max died on the operating table. Zachary lived for 10 months and only made it out of the hospital for a month and had like a million health problems. So it was quite the ordeal. We were young. It was very intense. It was heartbreaking. And I felt this like, you just looked at their faces and they were just such old souls. And... Um, I just felt honored to have been their mom and to, to, and it, it, it actually made me so much of a better mom for my two boys, <clears throat> but who I eventually had, but it made me realize, you know, it's not, life's just totally not in our hands. And, um, clearly these souls were here. They had like five minutes left of a lifetime to leave before they moved on. And, it, it, it absolutely changed me as a human being, the whole experience. So as sad as it was, it was also an honor and a joy to have been their mom for a very short period of time. Mm. So that happened. And then I went on to have two more boys. I have two wonderful sons, Lexi and Willie, and they're just wonderful human beings. And I love being their mom. And, you know, Zachary and Max are very much part of our family. We talk about them. I mean, they are very much in our lives in terms of their spirits. And that's wonderful. And then in 1988, my brother was on the uh, Pan Am 103 that exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland. And that was horrible. And so, you know, I lost him. He was my best friend. And that was very, very sad. So that, too, was an experience of like, and I think actually in answer to your question, how does it relate to all this other stuff? This is why I think that when I change careers or when I try to do something that's in my heart or when I try to follow my curiosity, the, what's, what's the word I'm searching for here? It's like that movie, uh, what's the movie with Tom Hanks when he's on the, the 
abandoned on the beach with the volleyball. Castaway? Castaway. And at the end of the movie, after he'd been through God only knows what, the airplane crash, losing his wife, you know, being with the ball, losing the ball, he's on a road and he's um, trying to figure out whether to go see this woman who he had met momentarily or trying to turn left, right, go straight. And he realizes it just doesn't matter because he has experienced the worst of what he could experience and he survived. So whatever comes next is like icing on the cake. And I think that's what happens when you go through like really intense experiences. Now, yes, I'm as neurotic and crazy as the next guy and I worry about stuff. So it's not like I am this like zend out human being quite far from it. But I also carry in me this very real sense that, you know, of a higher purpose in life. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And it, I mean, also speaks, you know, we were talking a little bit about resilience before that, like you said, you know, you go through these things and then you keep going and like, there is something in that that you carry with you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I actually think that that's a really lovely place to start to wrap up. Um, unless before we kind of move into our last few questions, is there anything that hasn't come up yet that you really wanted to mention or talk about? I, I think nothing. I mean, I feel like I've lived a thousand years. <laughs> you, you just relived like, all your whole life. <laughs> I'm really a thousand years old. I've had like so many experiences, so many careers, so many intense things that have happened. But no, I think we've covered everything. Okay. Well, then, as you know, um, we end these episodes with some community questions. You know, the folks in the Patreon community put forward questions that they'd love to hear all eight guests of each season answer. So this season, there's nine questions. If you are open to answering nine random questions. Of course. Your questions are always great and always hard. So like I'll buckle my seatbelt and here we go. (laughs) Okay. Well, it's not a test. So don't worry. They're not supposed to be that hard. There's no right answer. The first question is about self-acceptance. Can you share one thing that you've had to work to accept about yourself? I think one thing that I have to accept about myself is, as I've mentioned, that I am a worrier and I just have to let myself worry and I have to do the things that I know will like get it out of my body and whether that's like talking it out or, you know, going to therapy or writing, whatever, but it's just part and parcel of who I am. Yeah, no, I love that because there's, there's something really freeing and accepting who you are as opposed to, you know, I can see there being an internal dialogue of what's wrong with you that you're wearing this much. You shouldn't be wearing this much. Like, can't you just get over this? And like, that's such a more agonizing process than like, okay, you're a worrier. Here's a couple of things that are going to help you move through that. Just give yourself what you need. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love that. Exactly. Who's someone, maybe a writer, blogger, podcaster, someone on social media who has had an impact on your thinking this year? I love the work that Glennon Doyle, Cheryl Strayed, you know, uh, that they're all doing to, um, I think, I forget the name of their organization, but whenever something happens in the world, they go out into the trenches, they raise money. They go into their community, they use their notoriety and all of their followers to really create community and um, help whether there's an earthquake or some 
shooting or all the horrible things that happen in our world, they give a place for us to go to donate money and to be in community so we don't feel so alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that work as well. I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Um, What's one place that you would love to visit in the next year? I would love, I actually, I think would love to go to Morocco and I would love to ride a camel. So funny that you say that about Morocco. I don't know that I've ever thought about Morocco much in my life. And like two weeks ago, I started thinking, man, that would be a really cool place to go. It's so funny that you say that. It's so, you know, when I look at photos of it, it's so, I also would really like to go, there's something about the the, the foreignness of it and also India, the foreignness of it. But the, the um, Morocco is just so aesthetically beautiful and the colors and the doorways and I don't know. It just seems like it would be a wonderful trip. Yeah. Well, you should go. That sounds great. Um, uh, (laughs) What's a a favorite self-care activity lately? What are you doing to take care of yourself? Um, I think, you know, these are trying times politically. So I think I'm watching a lot less news. When I do watch it, I have it on mute half the time. So I like have it on because I'm like so trained to watch the news at night, but I don't even listen to the sound. Uh, Reading a lot, you know, I try to like combine my intake of the news to like, to, you know, certain periodicals or certain things. So I, I, I think it's important to know what's going on, but I don't flood my body with it because it just makes me too anxious. And I think trying to be out in, in nature as much as I can. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. This idea that, I mean, you don't have to be tapped into the 24 seven news cycle in order to be informed and educated and involved. Exactly. It's like not healthy. Yeah. I get it. Exactly. What's one thing that you're objectively pretty bad at, but that you love to do anyway? Ooh, good question. What am I objectively bad at? Well, I'm objectively bad at a lot of things, but You know, I would say that I am not, I am not like creative by nature in terms of, I don't know how to draw very well. And I don't know how to, like, if I was throwing a pot, like mine would be really crooked. Like, it's just not something that I I, I feel, you know, mine is definitely like the second grade version of like what everybody else is doing, but I also really love doing it. I love that. That's great. What's one thing that you've quit in your life that felt hard to quit at the time, but wound up being the right choice for you? Uh, Probably when I left my nonprofit, because it had been my baby. I mean, I, I thought it, I grew it, I developed it, I raised all the money for it. I like woke up every morning. I didn't know what I was ever doing, but I just kept taking the next steps. And it became like this, like wonderful, beautiful, organic thing. And I was so proud of it. And I knew not only was it time to leave, but I had to turn it over to somebody else and actually to somebody that was, whose views were very inconsistent with mine. So it was sort of like having kids and all of a sudden your ex-husband marries somebody who's their stepmom, who like has such a different philosophy about raising the kids than you do. And you have to just let them be with her. And that's how I sort of felt about that. But I also knew, I also knew like if I was to grow, I just had, I had to let go. Yeah. Oh my God. There's, that's such, I mean, it's a, it's a funny analogy and also a really powerful lesson. Like sometimes you just have to let go. 
Yeah. Yeah. The next question is about books. Which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? Mm. Okay. Um, I love the book When Breath Becomes Air. Mm -hmm. uh, do you know that book? Yep. Paul? Yeah. Uh, that just, I think about that book all the time, just his courage and his bravery and his desire to write that book and leave a legacy for his daughter and for all of us and what the dying process is like. I, I just love that book. I loved, uh, Liz Gilbert's book, the, um, what's her book about the, uh, the woman, um, the signature of all things, signature of all things. I love that book. Me I too. just love the, the character. I like missed her when I finished the book. I went, Oh, I want to, like, I loved having her in my life. I love David White's book, Crossing the Unknown Sea, about the philosophy of work and why we work. It's just, I read it every year. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. I will have to check that out because I read and loved both of the first two that you mentioned and have not read that one yet. So I will have to put that uh, on my list. Yeah, that's a good one. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? I would say a small action to take would be to track your activities for three weeks. It's called, a, you can Google it. It's called the Good Time Journal, and it's from Designing Your Life, but you don't need to Google it. Just track what you do and whether or not it brings you energy and engagement or whether or not it totally depletes you. And then just like, look, look, make a little flow chart about like, what's pick four things that have energized you over the three weeks and four things that have depleted you and see if you can like make some tweaks to where they fit into your day and your week. For instance, you know, if you're work in a place where you have to go to lots of meetings and the meetings really, really drain you? Is there a way you can create space after the meetings or before the meetings to, you know, take a walk outside or to have a conversation with a friend to try to retweak your week in such a way or your day in such a way so, like, you don't end the day in a deflated kind of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it goes back to what we were saying before about sometimes it doesn't have to be, the answer might not be quit your job. It might be what are the small right. tweaks that you can make. Yeah, I love that. That's so good. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks or if people are interested in hearing more about, um, I know that you mentioned before your new course relaunch, next sessions of that, where should people go? So my, probably my website, ellenfondler.com, and I'm sure you'll have it in your notes. Uh, and I have, you know, announcements on that. And then sign up for my newsletter, because in my newsletter, you not only get to read my writing, but you also, I, I refer to all the blog posts. You can read all the interviews that I've done with people in the How Did You Do That interview series. And also I make announcements about my courses and when the next ones are. Also on my website, you know, if you go to relaunch, it announces you can put your name on the list. If you're interested in the course, I do it online on Zoom and also uh, in person in San Francisco. And um, I hope to travel next year and maybe do it in different places like L.A. or New York or sort of just use it as a way to go hang in different cities for four to six weeks. So, uh, yes, go to my website, sign up for my newsletter, 
and sign up for the um, to be on the list for the next relaunch course. I love that. And your newsletter is where we get good stories, like the chickens and buttons stories. Chickens so. and buttons, exactly. <laughs> so I, that's going to be one of those things that stays with me. Um, Ellen, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicole. This has been such a joy, and I so appreciate you having me. I'm so honored to be here. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Kate. Hi, Kate. Hi, Nicole. So we're going to do a hopefully fun little round of (laughs) rapid-fire questions, if you're ready. Okay, I'm ready. My favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now? Oh, all right. So I know you're probably going to ask me this, um, and I could give so many answers, but really, I think the truest answer is that I am completely obsessed with dogs right now. (laughs) I really want to get a dog. Uh, We haven't been able to like make our housing situation work out. So basically I substitute drooling over other people's dogs and just like freaking out whenever I see a dog anywhere. Yeah, that's it's funny living for me now in Bend in a city that's so dog obsessed and yeah. not. I mean, I don't want to say that I'm not a dog person. Like I like who I mean, I like animals, right? Who doesn't like animals? Right. But I'm not. I don't feel the way that you feel. And it's funny yeah. to live in a city where everyone's like, "Oh my god, dogs!" I'm like, "Do I even fit in here?" It's like dogs, babies, and beer. And oh. I'm like, "What am I doing here?" <laughs> it's funny. See, I literally feel like the whatever hormonal energy I'm supposed to be like putting toward wanting to have a human child is just being put toward like wanting to have a dog. Yeah, like, that is that is a totally chill way to feel. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, are you following like any Instagram dog accounts? Oh my gosh. I follow so many dog rescues <laughs> on Instagram. My Instagram feed is like half rescue puppies. <laughs> I love it. That was me for a while with people fostering tiny baby kittens. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Same kind of thing. So good. Um, when you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh my gosh. I had, um, a lot of phases. I think most people do. There was a pretty extensive phase when I wanted to be like a NASA engineer. Fancy. Not how things worked out for me. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert, not a NASA engineer. No, probably when I did really badly at like introductory physics, that was the end of that dream. (laughs) But yeah, for a while I was like a real space nerd and I watched Apollo 13 like once a week. And um, yeah, I wanted to be one of those people like in the control room in Apollo 13 who like sleeps on the floor and like wakes up to the alarms. Um, Basically, I pictured myself as like a real workaholic nerd. So I'm sort of glad that I have a more balanced life than that. That's hilarious. That just made me think that a fun question to ask people in like future outros would be what's the movie, right? Or the TV show that they watched obsessively when they were younger. I feel like that's like potentially a telling thing for me. I mean, I went in phases too, but it was definitely Peter Pan, the non-animated version, right? Like the one with the actual people. And I mean, I watched it so obsessively to the point that I don't know if I thought that I could fly or that like I would fly. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. I know you mentioned being, um, being really your ebook or your cycle. Bed, I like, just I do a purchased that myself this morning. So if anyone wants to get their own copy and work through it and DM me things about period stuff as we're learning, please do that because you didn't become an NASA engineer too. So Claire, you're the best. Thank you so much. Some dreams aren't meant to come true. It was definitely like all of the like 
really old school space movies and so yeah I had a lot of like space posters and fun stuff like that (laughs) what's been a tough lesson that you've had to learn the hard way oh man I mean definitely like I can't believe I'm not thinking of one like right away um the thing that comes to mind for me right now is that um when I was in high school I was not a serious runner, but like I ran a lot and like the first couple of years of college. Um, and I also had a really serious eating disorder. So I was like over-exercising and was like very, very thin, um, which I think can work for a while when you're like 19. <laughs> and I was very, I was like, I was fast. Um, and it felt really good to like run because, you know, I weighed a ridiculously small number of pounds. Um, but yeah, I think in the last few years as I've gotten back into running, I like I've had a long cycle of like injuries and trying to get back into it and just having to accept the fact that like the way my body actually wants to be built is not like conducive to running, you know, 10 consecutive seven minute miles <laughs> um, and being like a very determined person. I will try to push myself to do that and then I will get hurt. And I went through, I probably went through that cycle like four or five times. And I think I'm finally starting to realize that like, I can still run and it's fine and I can still enjoy it. But just, I have to like approach it very, very differently from when I was 19 and like treating my body like trash. Yeah. I think there's something really human in that and relatable well outside just kind of like running Mm -hmm. specifically. Just when you were talking, I was thinking that, you know, it's one thing to challenge ourselves and to push ourselves and, you know, to have like the growth that comes out of doing that, which is something that obviously you and I both believe in. I know that. And yet limitations are real, right? This kind of idea of like, anything is possible. Like, no, it's not. I'm not going to be an Olympian. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like certain things are, so it's like kind of finding that balance between it's worth it to push yourself to get the best out of yourself. As long as you're doing that within a realm, that's like mentally, physically, emotionally, Mm -hmm. spiritually healthy for you. Right. And that changes throughout different parts of your life. And like to what you're speaking to, it's, it's okay if there's some like grief or reckoning Mm -hmm. or disappointment with that, right? Like we actually can't do everything and Mm -hmm. that's okay, but it's not always an easy thing to accept. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, part of it too, is accepting that like, even if something's possible, doesn't mean that it's sustainable or doesn't mean that it's good for you. I definitely have days where I'm like, well, if I really, really wanted to, I could weigh 95 pounds again. And you know, run seven minute miles like all the time for long distances, but then having to like reel myself back and be like, no, like just because you could do that doesn't mean that it would make you happy. doesn't mean that like it would go on forever without like a huge crisis. So, right. I mean, just like at what cost, right? Like just because yeah. you could do something doesn't mean that that's a healthy choice. Right? right. And you're right that what you can do at 19 is not necessarily what you can do when you're in your twenties, thirties, forties, whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's something that you'd love to get better at in the next year? Ooh. Well, I would love to get better at running from like from where I am now. And I'd love to get better at like doing it in the mode that like seems to be working. Another thing that I've thought about wanting to get better at is like cross-country backcountry travel. <laughs> um, so I've done, I mean, you know, I've done a fair amount of backpacking. Um but the majority of my experience is like being on trails with, you know, a small amount of like, oh, let's like go off the trail to look at that lake or whatever. 
yeah, and this past summer I did like a little bit of like exploring off trail and like navigation and stuff. And I do think it just opens up a lot of possibilities. And um, especially in the area where I live, we have a lot of like really open country where it's pretty easy to do. So yeah, I think in the next, like next summer, I'm hoping that maybe I can do a little more of that kind of adventuring. Yeah. That's something else that I would like to get better at as well. My navigation skills are trash and for yeah. all the things that I would like to do in the back country, that's not safe. So yes, yeah. I hear you. Um, yeah. The last question, what's one thing that you have been wishing that people were more open and honest about? Ooh, okay. Well, this is another one where I'm like, I could give you so many answers. One thing that I thought about in the last couple of years is, it's a little bit of an odd answer, but religion, I think, is something I wish that it's just such a politically charged thing now. And I think especially like in the US, um, I don't know about other places, but um, my husband comes from a pretty religious upbringing and I don't. And I feel like he and I have been able to have like just some really good conversations about it where we learn a lot from each other. But I find that it's really, really rare. Like even just talking to his family about it is hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I wish that, you know, I do wish people would talk about it more with like, just approach it in more of an open way. And like, what can we learn from each other's beliefs of like, where are the areas of commonality? I feel like it's something that people get really defensive around. Yeah, sure. It's a good answer. Yeah. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season, for which I'm super grateful. And I would love for you to share two things. First of all, why you decided to support the show. And then secondly, what's been your favorite thing about being in the community, favorite, one of the bonuses, whatever you want to share. Cool. Um, well, I guess I mentioned that I had a pretty serious eating disorder when I was in high school. And I almost can't believe this now because like, since listening to your show, it's become such a common concept for me. But one of the first episodes of this podcast that I listened to was actually the first time I had heard the phrase diet culture, hmm. which was a huge revelation. I was like, oh my God, there is a word that people use for this thing that I feel like I am fighting like every day of my life. (laughs) Um, So that was definitely a moment of like, oh man, this is really valuable content and definitely something that I want to support. I am also a writer. I feel really lucky in that I have for the past few years have like landed in jobs where I get to do a lot of writing and I also get like paid really well. <laughs> um, but I, I look around and think about like what other opportunities would there be for me to like really do what I love. Um, and I just think that this kind of work and like producing good content and writing and thinking in like a really personal way is vastly undervalued. Um, so if I can do like a small part to address that, then I'm definitely going to do it. Let's see. And then in terms of my favorite thing about being in the community. Um, I mean, really, I just started supporting the show because I love the show. I definitely love getting your emails. Um, and like, that's something that every Friday I like open them up and read them. And then I kind of like leave them in my inbox until I've read them like six times. <laughs> oh my God. That's <laughs> then, the nicest feedback. Thank you. <laughs> oh, no, I do. Cause usually I, I archive things in my inbox when I feel like I'm done with them. And often that means like, Oh, I replied to this or I acted on this in some way, but 
usually with those Friday emails, it's like, oh, I, I'm done with it when I feel like I've fully processed it. <laughs> and usually that takes like at least 24 hours <laughs> and I have to read it a few times. Yeah. So I love those. Um, but mostly, I mean, I just like, I listen to the show all the time, um, whatever I'm doing, anything that I can do with headphones in. So I, I think like if I listen to it that much, I should support it. So that awesome. is incredibly kind of you to say. And awesome. that makes me laugh that you, <laughs> I think it was last week where you replied to my emails and you're like, I read this three times. Or whatever you yeah. said. I was like, that's amazing. Um, also it's just, it's so, it's been so nice for me to be able to take the online connections and friendships that have happened through the podcast and through the people in the community and offline, right? Like if we didn't know each other because of this podcast, mm-hmm then we wouldn't have met when a spoiler alert for everyone listening. Kate was an incredible trail angel for me when I was on the PCT and did amazing things in Bishop. But like that wouldn't have happened if we didn't know each other through this. So it's, I don't know, it's just like very cool how online connections and people in the community has like been able to transfer offline. Well, I was honored to meet you and be like a small part of your trip. I, I'm honored that you refer to me as a trail angel. I think I frequently referred to myself as an Instagram stalker, but <laughs> <laughs> well, both can be both true. Good. So that's fine. Oh my God. I love it. Um, can you share where you live and maybe a social media link if people want to say hi? Yeah. So I live in Bishop, California. Um, my husband and I just moved here about two months ago. And if you are anywhere in the vicinity, it's like near Mammoth Lakes, California. People know where that is, but definitely uh, say hi to me because we are new arrivals and uh, love meeting people. I am on Instagram at kate.mcshane. I think that's right. Yeah. And Instagram is kind of the only social media I really use. So Instagram is my favorite there. thing too. Yes. Yeah, totally. Um, so thank you so much. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. Honestly, I can't tell you how much that support means to me. And it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 